Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1, uh, having a bit of a topical series, uh, I'd say expository uh, topical series, uh, give us a chance to uh, dip into various books uh, around the Bible, and we come uh, this evening to Colossians as uh, Colossians chapter uh, 1, this section here uh, from verses 13 through 23, is perhaps the greatest section on Christology in all of the Bible. And so when we think about Solus Christus uh, in our um, series on the, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, this is a good passage to go to. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Colossians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. It's a reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Seated. It's really something uh, when you consider what the uh, liberal church uh, says about uh, the roads to heaven, that there are many roads to heaven. There are those that would teach that salvation is sort of set up like a mountain, and there are all these paths. Uh, going up to the top and where we meet God, and, and all those paths are sort of different religions. It uh, doesn't matter sort of what kind of religion you hold to, uh, just so far as you are sincerely in that, exercising some kind of faith, and on your way up uh, to be with God forever, where we will dwell together. This is a form of universalism. And uh, this kind of thing, of course, is held by uh, mainline uh, liberal churches. And uh, I learned that uh, a bit the hard way uh, when I was invited to speak at a very large church. I won't tell you what church it was, and I, don't I won't tell you where it was, uh, but I'll just tell you it was a, a big, well-heeled uh, mainline church, and I was, I was invited by a, a friend of mine that I'd gone to college with. 
uh, to do this. And uh, she, she reached out. She said, would you like to come speak to our, our big singles class? We've got about 250 singles in there. And I said, now, where do you go to church again? She told me, I said, you want me to come to your singles? Yeah, I do. I do. I think it'd be great. You can tell your, share your testimony. You can... I said, are you sure about that? She said, yes, I'm sure about that. I said, okay. Um, so anyway, uh, came in, and I decided that day I was going to speak on something very un- uncontroversial in that church, and that is that Christ is the only way to heaven. And I began to kind of lay it out. I went to John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I am a way. I am one truth, and I am a part of the life. He said, I am the way. I am the life. I am the truth. And so as I began to share uh, this message and unpack John 14, 6, Uh, many began literally getting up and walking out of the room. Probably by the time I was done, uh, 20 or 25 people had had left uh, the the building. Um, I was not invited back. um, uh, But what I was hoping and praying for is that maybe, just maybe, as many of these would have been hearing these things for the very first time, that some would have heard the message and by God's grace, repented and believed the message that Jesus himself brought, which is that he is not a way of salvation, but the way of salvation. And when we come to passages like Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 23, we have to ask now, how could you not believe that Christ is the only way of salvation when you read this? Um, it becomes very anti-Christian to say anything but Christ is the only way of salvation. Now, we have already, of course, uh, done a broad overview of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, uh, and then we looked at sola scriptura, uh, that uh, the scriptures alone are the authoritative rule for faith and practice, uh, and we looked at various attributes of scripture, and then last time we were together, we looked at um, uh, sola scriptura, excuse me, just a minute, sola gratia, uh, and we saw that we are saved by grace alone uh, and not by our own works, not by uh, anything else that uh, we could latch on to. We are saved by grace, and we have no uh, moral ability in our natural state in order to love God and choose God and and, uh, pursue God. No, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 2, and that there is no life in us apart from the Spirit of God, bringing us to life by bringing us into union with the risen Christ, and in Him uh, we are saved. And so, sola scriptura, sola gratia, the scriptures alone are the rule of faith and practice. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. And then we come to uh, this next section, solus Christus, that we are saved by Christ alone. We are saved by Christ alone. And and thinking about what passage to choose for such a text, we could have gone to John 14, 6, we could have gone elsewhere. But here, as I was saying before, is one of the highest and most glorious texts on the nature and work of Christ in all of the Bible. If you want uh, to, to really drill down into a text that will help teach you about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done well then, unpack this section of Scripture. We'll be able to uh, consider it tonight, 
Uh, of course, if I was preaching through Colossians, uh, this section would merit probably about 20 sermons. Um, but this is jam-packed with wonderful theology about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so before digging into the passage itself, it's important, I think, as we come to a text to uh, just think for a moment about the context. It's one important uh, a principle of, of biblical interpretation, of hermeneutics, uh, that you not only look at the text, but you also look at the context, kind of figure out what's going on here. Well, this book was written by the Apostle Paul, of course, in 60 to 63 A.D., sometime in that time frame. It was written to the church at Colossa, a Roman province of Asia, which is now in modern-day Turkey. Paul had been informed by Epaphras, who is the founder of the Colossian church, we see that in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that there were some heretical teachings threatening the purity of the church. Now, I hear sometimes people say, you know, if we could only go back to the New Testament church where things were really peaceful, where things were really unified, if only we could go back to the golden age, and there just isn't one. If you know your Bible, you'll know that there were always things rising up in the church that were challenging the peace and the purity of the church. And oftentimes it was heretical teaching uh, that was true of the uh, Colossian church. So Paul wrote this letter to teach and exhort the believers in sound doctrine, particularly on the nature and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Uh, what was going on in the Colossian church in terms of the false teaching? There was what was called the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostic heresy. Gnosis is Greek, of course, for knowledge. And there was this heresy that you needed to have some special uh, knowledge uh, in order to be saved. And there were all kinds of heretical teachings about Christ himself. Uh, they denied the full humanity of Jesus Christ. They denied the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, why would they do that? Because the uh, Gnostic heresy taught that things in the spiritual realm were good, but things in the physical realm, just simply by being matter and physical, were evil. And so for them to teach that Christ, the eternal Son of God, had become an actual human being, uh, was awful for them because they would think, well, then that means the Son of God has become a part of our evil material world. That was the Gnostic, part of the Gnostic heritage. So they denied the full humanity of Jesus Christ. And um, we see all over Colossians that Paul was fighting against that, that heresy. Secondly, they denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so we see in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, and chapter 2, verse 9, Paul's emphasis upon the divinity of of Christ. And thirdly, they denied the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. As I just mentioned, they believed in this kind of secret knowledge uh, that would bring you to a kind of superior and mystical level of knowledge about God in order to be saved. Uh, interestingly enough, there are cults today, like uh, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, that would sort of teach some of this kind of stuff uh, that we see here in the Gnostic heresy. So, now that we briefly consider the background of the letter, let's spend a few minutes examining this marvelous text before us. And here I want us to see, first of all, in verses 15 through 19, the threefold preeminence of Jesus Christ. The threefold preeminence of Jesus Christ. First of all, Christ's preeminence in eternity. Christ's preeminence in eternity. 
Paul, in verses 15 and 17, refutes the teaching that Christ was less than 100% divine. He states that Christ, quote, is the image of the invisible God and that he is before all things. Although the Bible teaches that all mankind is made in the image or likeness of God, it is in a different manner that Christ is described here. He is the likeness of God. For mankind, we are made in God's likeness, but not possessing all the divine attributes in their fullness. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipotent. We are not omnipresent, infinite, sovereign. Christ was sent forth from heaven as the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, And Christ is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And so Christ did not become or transform into the image of God when He was born. He had been the exact image of God from all eternity. How? Because He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. We confess the Nicene Creed in this church. Every month, Christ is called God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by, before all things were made or by whom all things were made. Christ is God. Christ's preeminence was from eternity because he was and is the second person of the Holy Spirit. Trinity. This is precisely why Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen what? The Father. The Father. When the Son of God became a man, the invisible God, in this sense, became visible. And um, the so-called communicatio idiomatum, the, uh, the attributing some characteristics of the human nature of Christ to the divine, the divine to the human it's not wrong to do that. Like as in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 20, said that, that God bled for us. Uh, we know that God the Spirit doesn't bleed, but we know that God the Son in his, in his two natures as the person, the Messiah, did bleed on the cross. But we understand that when we say that the invisible God became visible, we say that because Christ is one person. And you could say, when you see him, I see God, the Son of God. And one day we shall see him. The apostle said, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. But Paul, in his setting forth of the nature and glory of Christ, does not stop there. He then goes on to speak of Christ's preeminence in creation, doesn't he? It says in verse 15, if you'll look there, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now you may have met Jehovah's Witnesses who have used this verse to try to prove that Christ was not God at all, but a creation of God. He was, he was firstborn of creation. And that's a good question. If they were to ask us that, what do you do with that? Well, the problem with their position is that it does not take into account Paul's use of the term firstborn in this context. For although firstborn may be employed chronologically, as in, I'm the firstborn of my family, it is often used in Scripture to reference position or rank in a family or society. For example, 
Israel was called God's firstborn. In Exodus 4.22, Jeremiah 31.9. They were not the first uh, people to be born on the earth, but they held an esteemed position as God's chosen nation. In Psalm 89.27, God says of the Messiah to come, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn is a position of rank and a position. And not only did Christ hold the highest position in the universe as God's son, but he also created the universe. The creator of the universe. Look at verse 16 with me. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him. Now, this is the real kicker. And for him, for him, God the Father created the world through God the Eternal Son for the Son, for him. In other words, there is nothing that has been created that was not created by Christ and ultimately for Christ. This is a high view of Jesus Christ, if there ever was one. Those who have a a weak or low or superficial view of Christ should go to Colossians 1 and see that he is the eternal Son of God, that he is the second person of the Godhead, that he created the world, and it was created for him. Commenting on this passage, John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, said this, quote, Thus Paul places the Son of God in the highest seat of honor that he may have the preeminence over angels as well as men and may bring under control all creatures in heaven and in earth. But Christ is not only the firstborn over creation, holding an esteemed position of rank as the Son of God and the creator of the universe, but also he is said in verse 17 to be the sustainer of the universe. Did you catch that? Look at verse 17. And he is before all things because he's eternal, and in him all things, what? Hold together. Wait a minute. In Christ, all things hold together? Yes, all things. All things reminds us of Hebrews 1.3 when it says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. So Christ not only created the world, but he holds the world together. Every moment, dear one, your heart continues to beat. It is because Jesus Christ is upholding you and sustaining you. Every moment we have on this earth, God is sustaining our lives. Every moment we have in heaven for eternity, the Lord is sustaining us. Every molecule in the world is held together by the powerful word of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not a way. He's not a truth. He's not one kind of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the exalted and glorious Son of the living God. He is eternal. Think about this as it concerns the cross now. As you consider who Christ is, having come into this world, born of a virgin, living a life in this world, suffering, 
without sin. And he goes to the cross at Calvary. And he is mocked and he is spit upon and he is whipped. And he is laid down on a cross for you and for me. And the metal stakes were driven into his wrists and his feet. And the cross was lifted up. And there he is bearing our shame and our sin. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders and many of the town folk are mocking him. If you are who you say you are, come down from the cross. You who say you can uh, uh, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down. While they are mocking him, while they are whipping him, him while they are spitting on him and calling him names Christ is not only withholding wrath and judgment towards them he is actually sustaining them he is upholding them by the word of his power this is the power of Christ and the love of Christ father forgive them for they know not what they do he's upholding them even as they mock him We see Christ's preeminence in eternity, his preeminence in creation, and finally his preeminence as the head of the church. Christ is called in verse 18, the head of the body, the church. This year we will celebrate 10 years, and what will be repeated again and again will be that God is faithful and that this is his church. This is his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. That's why I love the name of our church. That's why I love the name of our church. It is Christ's church. He is the head. It's his. And we see Christ called the head of the body, the church. He's also said to be the firstborn from the dead, isn't he? Not because he was the first one to be raised from the dead, but because his resurrection is the restoration of all things regarding the new creation of his people who would receive him. Christ is the firstborn from the dead because he is the prototype of what will happen to all of us. We too shall be raised unto everlasting life and receive a glorified body. Christ is the firstborn. He holds the position of preeminence and prominence in the church. And, in, and it is Christ, therefore, that must have first place in everything. First place. Look there in verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's a Christ-centered perspective and view of life. That's a Christian worldview, that Christ is preeminent in all things, in the church, and in our lives. Well, the second thing I want us to notice here as we think about Christ, uh, solus Christus, and the centrality of Christ in salvation and in the church is, number two, the glorious gospel of Christ explained and applied. We see this in verses 13 and 14 and verses 20 through 23. So in order to truly understand the gospel... Of course, we need to understand the nature of our sinfulness and rebellion against God who is infinitely holy in his nature and character. Uh, David, uh, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, expressed in Psalm 51 that the, the real sin that we commit, the real 
a person that we sin against primarily and preeminently is God himself. So we do sin against one another but and our neighbors, but we ultimately, in every sin we commit, sin against God. And, and Psalm 51 says that against you, O God, against you only, uh, David uses there hyperbole, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In Romans 3.10, it says, there's not one who is righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Our culture has been uh, in moral chaos and, and things are sort of spiraling uh, out of control in our day. But God's divine nature has not changed one single bit. There may have be things that we have become somewhat comfortable with, things that we used to blush about that we no longer do. It's not good. It's not good. But God has not changed one single bit. He is the Lord. He is God. He does not change. There's no shadow of turning with him. And so he remains holy and righteous, just as we sang earlier, as the day this world was created. And here is the great dilemma. Mankind is helplessly corrupt in his rebellion and sin, and God is perfectly holy and just, administering just punishment to all those who die in their sin and rebellion. For those who look to Christ, however, that dilemma is solved. Solus Christus. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. We are not saved by our good works. We are not saved by uh, some uh, commitment to a denomination or uh, through some kind of religious rites. We are saved by Christ alone. And that was emphasized over and over again in the days of the Reformation, and we must continue uh, to do that. Christ lived a sinless life. Christ died a substitutionary death. And it's through Christ alone that we are saved. Martin Luther said this, quote, Wouldn't you have loved to sit under Luther's preaching? Oh, man, how amazing would it have been. He said this, Since all of us born in sin and God's enemies have earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell. He's, he's sort of beating around the bush here, right? Um, We've earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell so that everything we are and can do is damned and there is no help or way of getting out of this predicament. Therefore, another man had to step into our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man, and had to render satisfaction and make payment for sin through his suffering and death. End quote. That is Luther. That is Luther preaching to his people, preaching to us this evening through that quote. Christ's life, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection. Jesus Christ, having lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death, he rose bodily from the dead on the third day, thereby overcoming death and bringing reconciliation between heaven and earth. That is, as mediator, bringing peace between a holy God of heaven and those who would receive Christ through faith. What happens to those who receive Christ by faith? We see in verse 13, the first thing, there are three things. First thing is this. They are rescued and transferred. 
rescued and transferred. I remember uh, many, many years ago, I think I was um, maybe, uh, maybe seven or eight years old, you know, it was about 20 years ago, um, and uh, I, I was out with my little brother, uh, and we were um, uh, just sort of wandering throughout the, the hills near where our cabin was in uh, Northern California, and we got lost. And we had no idea where we were, and it was getting dark, and it was getting cold, and uh, we began to get very, very concerned. And, uh, and then, thankfully, uh, at dusk, uh, just before it got r super dark, uh, the uh, forest ranger uh, drove up, and my mom got out of the car and, uh, and, and, and ran towards us and embraced us. Um, and then later we got in trouble. Uh, but, but at first, it was all real nice. <laughs> but we, we were rescued. We were lost. We were confused. We, had, we didn't know where we were going to go. We, didn't, we had no idea. And that's, that's a picture of people in their sin. But God rescues us. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. He has delivered us or rescued us, as some versions would say, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He did this. He rescued us. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we are rescued and transferred in Christ. Secondly, we are redeemed and forgiven. Look at verse 14. It says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. We are redeemed. A price has been paid and we have been purchased with the blood of Christ and we are forgiven of all of our sins. So we are not only rescued and transferred, redeemed and forgiven, but we are thirdly reconciled and restored. Look at verse 22 with me. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Before him. So we are reconciled to God and we are restored in our relationship for him unto uh, a place of holiness and blamelessness in part here and in full later. And so as we think about solus Christus, as we think about this wonderful sola of the Protestant Reformation, how do we respond? Well, number one, dear ones, let us continue in the faith firmly established at all times, embracing Christ as your sovereign Lord and all-sufficient Savior. Do not ever move away from the hope of the gospel that is where Christ himself is the object of our faith. Look there in verse 23. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Don't shift from it. Continue in it. Persevere in it. That which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Secondly, when fighting temptation and sin from outside of yourself and from within, Remember who Christ is. Remember who he is. Remember who your Lord and Savior is. 
he is not just another prophet. He's not just a great teacher. He is the eternal Son of God, same in substance and equal in power and glory as the Father. He is the exact representation of the Father. Through Him, the whole universe was created, and in Him, and by the word of His power, all things hold together. And this glorious God, Son of God, took on human flesh and was condemned in the flesh for you and me. He went to the cross even while upholding the people that crucified him. And in him, we are redeemed. In him, we are reconciled. In him, we are rescued. In him, we are delivered. In him, we are forgiven. So remember who Christ is when you're living your Christian life and fighting temptation and seeking to persevere through discouragement. Remember who Christ is. Thirdly, thirdly, if you have never trusted yourself, if you've never trusted in the preeminent Christ who we have been considering this evening, who is both Lord of creation and salvation, turn to Him tonight. Turn from your sin. Repent of whatever you've been placing your trust in and turn to Christ. He welcomes you with the open arms of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. Christ offers himself in the gospel. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest and I will give you forgiveness and I will give you righteousness and I will give you everlasting life. Look to Christ, solus Christus, Christ alone, and Him alone is our salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for this brief time together tonight in Your Word in this glorious text, so filled with marvelous gospel truth about the nature and the work of Your Son. We thank You for this gift from heaven, and we ask, Lord, that You would be at work in us as we seek to honor and to glorify You. And that Christ, your Son, is the object of our faith, solus Christus. He alone is our Savior, and we put our hope and our trust in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand and sing together.